many leaders don't want to, many leaders fear disappointing people. They fear the, the, their obligation to reject even good ideas. And so they dole out way too many yeses to purchase popularity, um, to purchase regard, to curry favor. Um, and they don't appreciate the dilution factor that has. Um, and yet, you know, leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. That's your job. And narrowing the focus of your organization to the, to the few priorities that, that can help them succeed and win, that's your gift. People will respect you for saying no. They may like you for saying yes, but they will lose respect for you for doling out way too many yeses. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we talk with an organizational capability and leadership expert two times TEDx speaker, Harvard Business Review and Forbes contributor, and co-leader of a 10-year-long longitudinal study on executive transition. He studied communication at New York University and has a 35-plus year track record helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. His career has focused on roles in leadership, organizational development, culture change, and capability at companies such as PepsiCo, New York Power Authority, ADP, and was a partner for Mercer Delta Consulting Group. Since 2004, he is the owner and manager, uh, managing partner of Navalent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. His 2017 TEDx talk on power delved into the exertion of our will on others, where power comes from and who gets to use it, and also explored the mysterious force of human nature and how it can be used to create a more connected and compassionate community. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a dad of two amazing kids who is passionate about leaving the world better than he found it and helping people on the journey of rising to power. Ron Carucci. Ron, welcome to the show. Greg, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Ron, you have a very esteemed uh, career in organizational development and leadership. But what I would like to know is where did it all start? You know, where did you grow up? And, and what was kind of your big dream as a child? You know, as I, so I, I had the privilege of growing up um, outside New York City, and I'm a classic, you know, New York City Italian kid, uh, youngest of five, family of five. And, um, you know, if you were sort of anthropologically to look back at the, my, my formative years, you would see I was the kid that wanted to organize the stickball game on the street. If there was a school event happening, I wanted to spearhead it. Um, if there was a party to throw, I wanted to, you know, so I, I found myself in lots of times just wanting to be that sort of orchestrator of things. 
I think e even then I was fascinated by the organizing of human endeavor that, you know, a bunch of people could come together and do something that no one person could do. I had no language for that. I didn't know why I was drawn to those things, but I just know that <clears throat> all through my school years, um, there was something about uh, whether it was sports teams or a school play that when you brought a bunch of people together to do their own individual part that the when the whole became so much greater than the sum of the parts, I was just endlessly fascinated by that. So I think the early signs of my desire to be an organizational behavioralist uh, were there. I don't know that I understood the cues. Um, it certainly wasn't the career I set out to, to, to pursue uh, when I studied, um, but it, I had a, a very fortunate discovery of it, you know, through a, through a pretty circuitous path uh, in my early professional years. Brilliant. And, and so, you know, you find yourself in those spaces when you were young. Were you someone that would just take full kind of authority and leadership or were you very collaborative in the way that you led in those early I, years? It, it was much more about, uh, yeah, I was not definitely out there in front leading. Um, it was much more of a, hey, let's go do this kind of thing. So, you know, sort of more through inspiration than authority of, hey, wouldn't this be fun? You know, and then even if people didn't went along went along begrudgingly it was still, still me feverishly doing the work because i think i thought it was so fun um so yeah no i never formal authority formal leadership was never appealing to me it was i never wanted to run for school office or you know be be out there in front that was never uh, at least not in that form anyway uh that was never appealing to me and interesting there you spoke around that you kind of found organizational development and, and leadership later on. So what, what was your kind of first desire? You know, you went and studied communication at university. You know, what did you, what were your kind of your first career path? Well, I, I actually didn't begin my, uh, I began my education in uh, the arts. Oh. Uh, uh, and I, I was a, uh, a performing arts major when I went to school and I had been working in that field since I was you know, young. So I made money in that field. Um, and which disappointed my parents because they were, I was the youngest of five and we didn't have a doctor yet. So I was supposed to go to medical school. So that kind of let them down hard when I did, when I chose such a radically different path, but several years into my studies, um, I learned something about myself. I don't know that I could articulate it, but I, I learned that I bored easily. And so while I was getting these great jobs that my friends were envious of, <clears throat> um, the idea of doing the same thing eight times a week in perpetuity terrified me. I thought, I, I don't, how long is this going to go on? I was done. And so I, I decided to take a break from New York and that world. And I, I went to work for a nonprofit company uh, who used multimedia, some of the arts that I was studying um, and some other, you know, new forms of, of presenting material to people that uh, I had not used before. And so it was, a, and it was a, a wide range of audiences and a wide range of topics and themes. Um, I got to travel the world. So I thought, if I just go do that for a while, may, may, maybe what it is I'm meant to do will come and find me. So about three or four years into that, I, I thought I'd, I'd, go, I'd go for a year and then come back to school. Well, that isn't what happened. I stayed five years. But in about my third or fourth year, I was over in Europe working. Um, the company had a very large uh, contract with the US military and state department overseas. And so we would work with um, government officials, state department, 
U.S. various branches of the U.S. military and do all kinds of workshops and training on a variety of topics using creative multimedia kinds of arts to teach. And in one particular uh, engagement, uh, we were at Dachau and we were in the chapel at Dachau and you know, I was in my early 20s, but I still understood how many levels of irony there were in being at a chapel at Dachau with a very varied audience of Germans, Americans, civilians, military. In the middle of that workshop, a young American soldier stood up. Uh, we were processing some of the material we had presented. And he very vulnerably said, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. Mm. And I remember being so taken back leading this discussion, thinking the first thing I thought was, how, how did something we did up here make him think that? But then I was even more fascinated by what did he mean? And so we processed a little bit as a group and he was very courageous to do so. But afterwards, I wanted to know more. So we were, you know, you're just south of Munich, which is Oktoberfest, so you go out for beer. So I invited him out to talk and we went out, talked for hours. And I think, you know, I don't know that I could put a finger on it, Craig, but I think that was the moment where I realized, you know, telling great stories for a living is interesting, but engaging people in their story and engaging people and help them figure out their story, that was fascinating to me. And I was fairly certain I would never get bored doing it. And I think that became that began the arc of my realizing that this organizational behavior and leadership was really the career I was meant to be in. And so when I repatriated to the United States, went back to graduate school and studied org behavior and uh, human development. And you know, I was very, very blessed that at, in my mid to late 20s, through a very circuitous route, found a path that was so right for me. And for 35 years, I've never looked back. Fantastic. And, and for you, you know, what do you see as kind of maybe three key characteristics of a successful leader? Uh, uh, you know, one of the things I usually look for is reluctance. Uh, most great leaders are not prone to want to lead. So they're a good sense of apprehension is often a sign of good humility. Um, uh, a fascination with their own story, not to the point of self-involvement, but to the point of self-engagement, where they really want to understand how did they become who they are. Because if they don't, if they're not willing to do that work, they're going to hurt people. So I, I'm, I want, I want to see leaders uh, dig into their own formative years and their own origin stories to understand how, how do they become the best and worst of themselves. Uh, and then lastly, I, I think, you know, it's a, um, a desire to serve that, that, you know, I, I tell executives all the time, if you, if you aspire to executive levels of leadership, you will suffer. Um, you, you may be, be very drawn to the, what you believe are the perks of, uh, of wealth or, or power or, all that you believe comes along with a very big job, but with it will come heartache and suffering and you need to be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. And I think leaders who are willing to make that sacrifice in the service of some greater good and never complain about it or hurt somebody else because they're in pain, I think those are the leaders who I think uh, will go the distance and lead successfully wherever they are. So who, who, would, who do you see in the world right now as someone that embodies those three aspects of leadership? Oh my gosh, uh, uh, Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, is a great example of that. Um, Hubert Jolie, the former chairman of Best Buy, is a great example of that. 
Um, these are people I've interviewed for my book. Um, uh, Andy Stanley from Patagonia is an example of that. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a number of them uh, out there. And, and, and it's wonderful to know that there are exemplars we can all want to emulate. Mm. Yeah, very good. And so before you went into kind of the um, organizational behavior leadership consulting side of things and, and been able to coach people and, and help organizations through those processes, you worked at a couple of different companies. So what was your greatest learning from working in New York Power Authority um, from an organizational capability point of view? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, so if you look at that collection of, of um, internal corporations I, I spent before going outside was you know, PepsiCo. I spent uh, a couple of years, ADP, and then and New York Power was my first real corporate job. And I don't, I, I, at the time I was not, I was too young to appreciate how good I had that experience. It was an incredible, those were five incredibly formative years um, at, at a time energy was deregulating. Um, you had issues of fossil fuels being, you know, environmentally questioned. And so it was an incredibly formative time for me as a as an early practitioner in leadership and organizational work. And I had an incredible boss who gave me extraordinary opportunities despite my petulance and my, you know, I, I, I was just, uh, I had a little bit of streak of entitlement. I just want, cause I wanted more. I wanted to learn more. Um, and I had an extraordinary runway there. So, but I think I, I would characterize the three of those experiences probably together as teaching me that, you know, ancient wisdom says you can't be a prophet in your own land. And the one, the one gift I never acquired working inside a company was diplomacy. Um, I believed my, I, I assumed what people wanted from me because of the work I was doing was that they wanted me to tell them the truth, that they wanted me to be honest about what I was seeing, that they wanted me to help them get better. And in, in order to get better, you had to talk about what the gaps were. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I lacked the skill uh, to be, you know, to be thoughtful about how I shared my views. And so politically, I, I was never very savvy. And so my experience inside companies, especially those three were sometimes rough, especially the last two. Um, and so uh, I have a wonderful collection of severance packages from those companies. Um, some, some I volunteered for, some I didn't. Um, but I think what they taught me was, and then I, you know, when I come outside and, and work on the, out, uh, the consulting side of the, of, the, of the house doing the same work, I thought, wow, the same thing that gets me politically in trouble inside companies gets me paid handsomely outside companies. <laughs> and it's the same behavior. So maybe I should take the hint and work outside companies. So I set up my own practice, but I quickly realized even after a year that I, you know, now I'm in my mid thirties and I don't have enough um, chops to, to go 35 more years on my own. I have not had enough experience at the top of the organization, which is really, really where I wanted to play. I wanted to play in the C-suite. I wanted to influence the influencers. And I, you know, I, I had a, a great repertoire of things I could do, but it was too big, right? It was, I was a jack of all trades, master of none. And so I shut down my practice and sold part of it to what was then, what was sort of like the Rolls Royce of organizational consulting firms. It was called Delta Consulting in New York City founded by an incredibly, you know, founding father of our field, David Nadler. And so I had the incredible experience of for eight years, being there eight years, had a phenomenal career there. I was mentored by him, was mentored by some, some of the best practitioners in the industry, got to do 
some of the richest work at the top of big enterprises uh, that was you know, systemically transformative all over the world. And those were eight incredible years of my career. Probably the hardest, but best career decision I made was to go there, knowing that I needed that time. Uh, about six years into that eight-year time frame, David sold the firm to Mercer. So now we're part of this big, giant conglomerate consulting firm, and I never wanted to be part of one of those. And I'm sure you've talked to consultants who, when you when you're part of that machinery, feeding the dinosaur becomes the job and not the craft. And I love I I had you know I was as in love or more in love with the craft as I was when I discovered it in Europe, you know, ten years prior. And uh, several of my friends uh, in the firm, we, we, we came together and said, you know, we, we still love the work. We don't love this version of it, though. We can go do this on our own. And so in 2004, I decided we would, uh, you know, three of us left the firm and said, let's go, let's, we can go. We didn't want to recreate what we had. We wanted, we wanted to create something better. And so that's when we started Navalin. Uh, and uh, that's been 16 years. Well, congratulations. What, you know, what is the meaning behind Navalent? It's a combination of two words. So the first word is navigate, um, because so much of what we do is to help leaders navigate tumultuous white water. The second word is valence. Valence is the, uh, the process in, in chemi- chemistry when chemical bonds are trying to form and they're trying to find each other and they create a transformative effect when they bond well. Um, and so literally the word, uh, the word navalent means navigating the bonds of transformation. Uh, and that we believe that's our, our job to accompany leaders on those journeys of, of, of transformation, uh, while forming great bonds with those they lead and those they, uh, work with. Oh, I love that. Very powerful. You have three components to that organization. You have leadership, organizational design and strategy. Why do you think those three need to work in harmony? That's a fabulous question. I didn't even pay you to ask it. Um, because, you know, it's interesting, Craig, because um, to us, to us as, syst- as systems practitioners, they're one thing. They're not, they're not three things. They're one thing with three parts. So if you think about how organizations work, right? Think about a, a, a machinery. Um, you have an intent, you have a reason you exist, you have a reason you compete, you have a, re, a, a presumably a set of markets and offerings that set you apart from the thousands of other people who do what you do. That's commonly referred to as a strategy. Um, you, the way you take that strategy and get res, and encode it into results is you put it into a machine. You take the strategy, you put it into a machine and out should, become, should be, get spit, preferably positive results. And that machine is called an organization. And that organization has sort of has hardware and software. The hardware is the work, the technology, the governance, the processes, the compensation models. Uh, and the software is the culture, the people, their aspirations. And they have to work in tandem. And so those that hardware and software, and then in the middle of that machinery is leadership, the people who are trying to govern the hardware and the software to make it deliver the results implied by the strategy. At any moment in that process, and almost always in every moment of that process, some of those things don't fit well. You have strategies that are misaligned from the organization design that's there. You have a culture that doesn't fit the technology. You have leaders who can't step up to the the market challenges. And often on the back end of the machine where the results are coming out, 
when those results start to not be the ones we want, those are the first time we acknowledge the symptoms of it. And so people reach for their favorite lever. So rather than looking at the machine as a whole, they pick apart their favorite lever. Let's reorg the structure. Well, we need new values. Put everybody through a training program. Um, Re-engineer the technology process. We pick out, we pick apart the machine to the point at which the machine starts to look like one of those people who've had way too much cosmetic surgery with their faces all stretched up like that. And you walk into organizations and you actually look, you, it looks like a, a bastardized version of itself. And that's when leaders call us because they realize they pull all these levers and nothing happened. Mm. It's because they didn't look at their own behavior as leaders. They didn't look at the machine as a whole and they didn't stop back and ask themselves, do we actually have a viable strategy? And do we all know what it is? Because I can tell you, one of the first questions we ask any senior executive team is, so tell me your strategy, tell me why you're here. We get all the counterfeits. We get the mission statement, we get the value statement, we get the annual operating plan, we get the principles, we get the product quota, we get, but we don't, but we don't get, who are you? What sets you apart? What makes you, what gives you a right to win? And, and if you do get a version of it, you should get 10 versions of it. So now I know why the organization is so misaligned because the 20 of you at the top of the house are leading it in 10 different directions. So to isolate the leadership behavior or the strategic identity or clarity or the organizational components of that strategy to make them work better is a fool's errand because at some point it all has to work together to use your word, great word, in harmony. And when it doesn't, if you only specialize in one part of that system, uh, you're going to fix one part of it at the expense of three others. Mm. Yeah. So, so looking at at that aspect, you know, strategy. We talk. I'm going to just pick out strategy for a little bit here. And I think this is a really important component. People will write a strategy, stick it on the shelf. It collects dust. And very rarely do they actually review it and discuss it until it's time to, oh, five years is up, let's do the next one. Yeah. And, and strategy is an ever-evolving, not beast, but it's, a, it's an evolving piece of a company and another team or a community. It is so important that it's embedded from top to bottom and aligned at all times. So how often do you think leaders should be spending on the review and discussion of strategy? Uh, the executive team needs to be discussing it at least monthly. Um, and I'd say even so much to review progress because that's too soon, but certainly we have quarterly management reviews, right? But if you sit through those reviews, they're just nothing but show and tell and usually, you know, plausible fiction um, because we have objectives for the year uh, and we look from there down, but we don't look at what strategies those, do those objectives ladder up to. Who did we say we were going to be in the marketplace? And so the first place I want to go back to is what differentiates you? What are the three or four things you have bet the farm on that, that would say, these are why customers are going to choose you over the seven other viable options they could choose. And I'm going to look at capabilities. For you to deliver on the promise of those differentiators, what do you have to be good at? What are the three or four things you have to be world-class, better than anybody at to deliver on the promise of those differentiators? And then I'm going to look at your budget. And I'm going to say, okay, if that's what you say you're good at, where are you spending your money? Are you disproportionately investing in those capabilities to keep them up, to refine them, to continue to push yourself apart from competitors? Um, and and is, is the, wor the competitive work 
of your organization quarantined from the necessary work that keeps the lights on. Because when it all gets mixed together, it gets diluted, right? So, so I want to know, do you know what differentiates you? And, and are you not diluted about that? Do you know what capabilities you need to be good at in order to deliver that? And have you invested in those capabilities aggressively, disproportionately? And, and what, I, what I see that to be true by the money you spend and the talent you've hired to do it and how you've, or, and how you've organized that work. So right there, I'm going to find the little fractures. If I just do that analysis alone, forget about whether or not the rest of it has fallen downstream or been cascaded into the organization. Um, <clears throat> the, 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 the challenge becomes when you have to, to use your eloquent description, when you haven't done that work, pe people are meaning seeking machines. They're just going to make it up. And so if I'm, if I don't know the reason we're all here, I'm going to form one in my head and I'm going to march to that. Well, if you have 10, 20, 30, 80 versions of the reason we're all here marching, you know, way out of step from each other, you, you now have an, you have a big spaghetti ball. Um, and most organizations, when they scale, especially when they scale globally, that's what they feel like. They feel like a confusing morass of walking through flypaper. Um, and in, in my recent research, uh, it actually is worse than that. What, uh, in my, the research I'm doing for my next book on organizational honesty, um, what we learned is that uh, we've, we learned four factors in which you can predict whether or not people will tell you the truth, behave with equity and fairness toward others, and serve a greater good. Or under the same conditions which they will lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. Um, one of them is that strategic clarity. If people do not know who you are, or worse, the words you put on the paper, your mission, your values, your brand promises, your purpose statements, do not match people's daily experiences of your organization or of you as a leader. You are three times more likely to have people lie, cheat, and serve their interests. Um, so that misalignment has a cost. It's more than just confusing or frustrating or inefficient or hemorrhaging cash or you know eroding of your margins. It actually sets the stage for unjust, unfair, uh, dishonest misconduct. As they say, confuse you lose. And um, I think that's really important. One of your, uh, a quote that I found um, that was written from, or, or, or you've spoken about or written about is, failure to make intentional hard trade-offs when executing your strategy ensures that all efforts are likely to fall short of the expected results. How can we make it easier for leaders to say no more than they say yes? Uh, great question, Craig. Well, the first uh, thing is to be honest about the fact that you struggle to say no and to figure out why that is. Many leaders don't want to, many, many leaders fear disappointing people. They fear the, the, their obligation to reject even good ideas. And so they dole out way too many yeses to purchase popularity, um, to purchase regard, to curry favor. Um, and they don't appreciate the dilution factor that has. Um, and yet, you know, leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. That's your job. And narrowing the focus of your organization to the, to the few priorities that, that can help them succeed and win, that's your gift. People will respect you for saying no. They may like you for saying yes, but they will lose respect for you for doling out way too many yeses. Mm. Um, in, the, in the power research you referenced earlier, one of, the thing, one of the surprising findings of that research for our book, Rising to Power, 
was the greatest abuse of power is not for self-indulgence. It's not the Harvey Weinsteins and the Jeffrey Epsteins and the people who are immoral or, you know, on the take for personal financial gain. Those, those leaders are there, but they are not by any means the most substantial version of abuse of power. The greatest abuse of power was the abandonment of it. People too afraid to use the power and they set it down. Um, and that's every bit of an abuse of power as the, as the abuse for self-interest because you have let go of the reins of the organization. You let it steer itself. And in many ways, you set people up to fail when you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so keeping people in a swim lane that you can win in where, where you've, the collective success of the organization is more important than any individual agenda, that's an executive's job. And if that's so uncomfortable for you to say no, if, if the angst you suffer from having to sort of make those hard trade-offs and narrow the playing field and not be distracted by every shiny object that comes your way, that's perfectly okay. Just don't take the job. Yeah. Do a role that doesn't require it of you. So you spoke about your know, rising to power, which was an Amazon number one um, book, which co-authored by Eric Hansen. And that was following a 10 year longitudinal study on executive transition. Why do more than 50% of leaders fail within the first 18 months of appointment? Um, and and what, what are the differentiating capabilities that set those successful leaders apart? Mm. So uh, the fact that we've known that for probably 20 years, that it's a 50-50 shot, was appalling to us. That somehow, I, I mean, obviously the headhunters like it because it's an annuity for them. But, but short of that, we thought, how has this been okay for so long? And nobody questioned this statistic as, as being unconscionably unacceptable. It got personal for us when leaders we were working with, you know, or leaders, the CEO had hired us to coach started to fail, you know, otherwise very promising middle management as they rose up, you know, they didn't, they, they weren't successful. And so it was very personal. So we thought, I, I don't, I don't understand how this keeps happening. I want to, I want to uncover every single rock there is to understand what is going on here. How are we setting these? Otherwise, I mean, how could you go from being high potential in the middle of organization and in six or eight months be a disaster? It doesn't make any sense. And yet that's what was happening. And what we found were all the landmines that organizations put in their way. I mean, starting with not preparing them for the role, right? They assumed, oh, you're phenomenal in the middle. This is just a little bit bigger version of what you were doing, which of course is an incredibly phallus, fallacious claim. Leading at the top is nothing like leading in the middle. And so they are wildly naive about what's going to be required of them and they're terrified. And so then they feel they need to cover that up. So now we've set in motion all kinds of seeds of failure early on. So I, I wanted to uncover every possible derailer of, of someone's ascent and expose it to say, okay, no more this 50-50 shot here. If you are going to ascend to a senior level, well, here's the blueprint that says if you just steer clear of these landmines or navigate them well, you can stick the landing. But that, was all, but that wasn't sufficient for me. I wanted to understand, well, okay, so if the other half or 40%, pick, pick your stat on the failure rates, there's plenty of them out there. Pick, pick your favorite. Whatever remaining percentage of leaders that are succeeding are left, I want to know what are they doing? How are they, How is it they're rising up and sticking the landing? What is it that's, that sets them apart from those otherwise really good-hearted, talented leaders that somehow flame out on the way up? 
So we, we uh, through the magic of AI, we used IBM Watson. And so we had phenomenally powerful technology to study our data with. We're able to isolate statistically four recurring patterns that kept, you know, no matter how we cut the data up, these four capabilities in some ranked order were following, finding their way to the top of what set these leaders apart. Uh, and the, the, I didn't want to have to write that you have, have all four of them, but after 99 regression analyses, our research teams had enough. It's not going to change. But the fact of the matter was, I didn't want to have to say you'd be perfect. You had to be perfect. But the good news is you can learn them all. So that was the one saving grace I had was to say, these are all acquirable capabilities. The time to start acquiring them is probably not after you've been given your first vice president job. And so you talked about uh, four components there. What, what are the four differentiating capabilities? The first one is context. So the leaders who succeeded were the ones that were able to read the tea leaves. They could look around and curiously understand this is why this is happening. They didn't um, ignore uh, uh, factors that seem weird, especially if they were hired from the outside of the organization. It's, we, we, you know, we've heard this so many times, the seeds of contextual failure are sown. When we say to prospective leaders, wow, look at the great supply chain you've turned around. We need that here. Or, oh my gosh, look at these great apps you built. We need that here. And we're implying that you have a recipe, a, a, a formula, and that we're inviting you to slap that recipe on us. So when the, when the leader shows up, they've been told to ignore the context and just retrofit their answer onto questions we may not even be asking. And of course, we all know where that story goes, right? That's the see suddenly the whole place is resisting you and they're backing away from you and knowing that you're going to flame out. And so that's the early contextual failure. Great contextual leaders read the tea leaves, are curious about the way things are, and know that they have as much to adapt in themselves as they do in the environment they're leading in. And they do not take the bait that there's some mythical mandate that they're there to change. The second one is breadth. So when you get to the senior levels of an organization, the, the fragments of an organization, the silos, are quite separated, right? And so great leaders can can bring together the parts of an organization to make it a whole. They can bring, they can stitch the seams into a cohesive set of capabilities. So they, those leaders understand that it's no longer just market analytics, marketing, uh, R&D, and manufacturing, it's innovation. And then and they had to bring together and coalesce those parts into a whole. They don't, they, you know, if they grew up in finance, they don't see the world through economics anymore. If they grew up in marketing, they don't see the world through consumers anymore. They have to broaden their eyes. Leaders that grew up in a functional silo or a regional silo and fail to broaden their perspectives outside the one they've been so conditioned in um, tend to tend to over-prioritize that capability at the expense of other ones. So these leaders didn't do that. The third was choice. So to your point before about hard calls, these leaders can make hard choices. They were able to make, they were able to say no, they were able to make trade-offs, they weren't looking for popularity, they were able to narrow the priorities of the organization. And 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 the way they made decisions was decodable. You knew if they were seeking consensus, you knew if they were being directive, you knew if they were how they and when they were being inclusive, and they were very clear about that. And the last was connection. You know, these are the, the, the relationships that leaders have with their direct reports, their peers, and their bosses. And these were the leaders that had remarkably trusting and highly regarding relationships with people. These are, every company has them. These are the leaders everybody they wanted to work for. You wanted to be in their presence and you knew that if you were, you were gonna learn something. Um, they, they were respectable, they were enjoyable. And, and, and what you most loved about them is that you were enjoyed by them. 
And what we, when we dug underneath what these leaders did, when they prioritized their network, it wasn't by those they needed something from. They prioritized their network according to who they could most help be successful. They, they looked for ways to use their time to contribute to other people's agendas, not take from them. And so you knew that if you were around them, you would end up being better and that your contribution would be made better by them. So again, you can see four big muscles, context, breadth, choice, and connection. Uh, but those are the four. If you want to guarantee your success at the top of the house, those are the four to start getting good at yesterday. <laughs> very, very good. We've seen, when we see growth occurring in companies, right? So we, we see a small business go to, a, we go, sorry, we'll go back a step. We see a sole trader go to a small business, a small business go to a medium business, and a medium business go to a large company and then potentially multinational following that. How does, the, how does it differ in that transitioning of leadership structure and organizational design when we go from small to medium and then medium to large? Yeah, fabulous question. So, you know, what, what often happens on that journey is that we grow, but we don't scale. And leaders don't understand how to manage the process. So like a human body goes through mitosis, right? Work divides, our cells divide inside the womb. Work is dividing all the time, especially at a much faster rate in the startup years and this, you know, the sort of the early to mid cap years. And the problem is it happens at such a rapid pace that leaders are not managing it well. And so they're hemorrhaging, they're, they're growing the top line as fast as they're spending the bottom line because they're not scaling, they're not putting in repeatability. They hate the word standardization. They think it's bureaucracy. Um, and so they don't know how to scale their businesses. And it's so easy to confuse growth with scaling. But if the market tailwinds are in their favor and they happen to have an offering or a product that is in high demand, they'll ride that wave as long as they can. Um, they'll, they'll see symptoms of churn and turnover and you know, some missteps on a supply for a, a big customer. You know, Costco will call or Walmart will call and that'll be a train wreck. Um, but they may bump their way through. The real problem with scaling comes when you go from that small medium to big medium. And here's, I sort of refer to it as, it's like the teenage boy in his dad's suit, right? They, these companies have sort of not, they're like the big puppy who hasn't grown to his own paws. They're, they're running around, you know, they're, they're, they're a, a $100 million company trapped in the body of a $30 million organization. And you can hear the seams ripping. You can hear the place coming apart off the rails. You can hear the pebbles in the gears. Um, and at that point, you have to do major redesign. Right. There's just no way to pack. There's no more patching together anymore. There's no more duct tape or chewing gum you can put around the thing to keep it operational. You're burning people out. Your product quality is low. Your margins are eroding. Customers are defective. You're going to see all kinds of performance issues there. And so at that point, you have to do a major enterprise redesign to step back and ask yourself, okay, forget about growing into the $100 million version of us from the body we have. What does it need to, how do we prepare for the $250 million version of us? or whatever the next big thing is, and design that organization and then learn to move into it and transition to it. It's different leadership capabilities, different technologies, more standardized processes, more repeatability in your HR, finance, technology, R&D, across your enterprise. Scalability uh, get, comes in your economies of scale where you have efficiencies and repeatability. Um, and what you typically find are 27 versions of the same process littered across the organization and so much wasted um, capacity and people just trying to you know, coordinate across these boundaries uh, that you just really can't coordinate because there's so many different versions of it. So 
uh, at that point, the courageous leader will step back and uh, and hopefully not just call in like a big consulting firm to come and do it for you, but engage your own leaders in the process of design so they learn how to design themselves. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And, and I think one thing too, as as companies start to grow first and get prepared to scale, that's when fatigue starts to creep in for the first time or really starts to creep in. And you know, as a leader and founder executive, it, it is quite different to that of, being in a manual job you know physical fatigue in a manual job has really strong triggers when you don't get recovery correct you know you feel the fatigue in your muscles you can't move as fast you can't do activities as easy as you would like like an athlete as a leader or executive it's more a mental and emotional fatigue and it is quite often the great enemy of leaders and the thing around mental and emotional fatigue is that it is so gradual the body keeps adapting to it and you don't realize what's happening until it's too late. Yep. How can leaders develop a scaffolding type approach to strategic leadership in a healthy manner? Uh, it's a fabulous question, Craig. So first of all, I think it's starting with understanding what you just said, that it, this is what it is and it is a marathon, not a sprint. And you have to know the signs of your own battle fatigue. You know, your short temper, um, your unwillingness to dig deep into a problem, uh, your dismissal of hard feedback, um, your leaving early, you know, and then there's all the dark sides, right? Your excessive consumption of alcohol, your, you know, wh whatever your dark behaviors are, right? So there are a lot of places we go to to manage those moments that are unhealthy. So you have to know those about yourself and steer clear. Um, but secondly, you have to make sure you have a team of people around you to, to hold you up. Right? This is not a solo act. And if you're trying to do it by yourself, you're hurting the company and you're hurting yourself. So make sure you've surrounded yourself with a team who will tell you the truth, who bring capabilities you don't, um, and who collectively share the reins of the company. Um, you may be at the helm as CEO, and that, that's a particular role and it is unique. But if, but if all decision pathways lead to you, if all resource allocations lead to you, not a team around you, you've already lost the war. Right. If you have not prepared a set of six, eight, ten picket, you know, leaders around you to hold those reins with you, uh, especially in the moments where you're fatigued, um, you will know that your battle fatigue has gotten the best of you when um, you settle for shortcut answers. So you know there's a major problem in manufacturing, and there's three three solutions in front of you, and you do, you pick the cheapest one, or when uh, certain customers are defecting. And your salesperson saying, this is really important. This is a big trend. And you're like, screw them. We have other customers. You, you'll know when uh, R&D comes to you and says, you know, the prediction we have for this third quarter launch of this product is not going to hit. Um, it, 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 it's looking like first or second quarter next year if this product's really going to do well. And you say, speed it up and get it out the door. And you don't listen to that leader. And now you're going to launch a crappy product. That's, those are the signs that will tell you you either should get out of the job or get some therapy or get some help and recognize that you are compromising for whatever near-term gain you think you're gonna have. You are, you are mortgaging the future of your company uh, because you're tired. Mm, very good. I wanted to swing back to one thing before we kind of go into some, a couple of closing questions. Your new book is around organizational honesty. So we hear a lot about vulnerability. We hear a lot about authenticity, being a genuine leader, being a conscious leader. What sets the work that you're doing apart from 
that approach that we've seen over the last few years with regards to organizational honesty. And is there a global leader or someone around the world that you feel that fits that, that mm. organizational honesty really well? So I love the question, Craig. Um, you know, we're, we're all looking for ways to discover our purpose, to become the best version of ourselves. We, we're, we're told the authentic you, even with the flaws, is the better you and the more credible you than the polished up you that is hiding behind an imposter syndrome. The problem is in an environment that doesn't value that, um, you now have this, this intertugal war. You really can't be true to yourself till you know the truth about yourself. And knowing the truth about yourself means you're willing to dig into your origin stories. You're willing to dig into how you became who you are. And you're willing to be honest about the fact that you're colluding with an environment that does not match a, a set of values you said you held, which then is a terrifying reality of what, what, what then do I do? Do I try and change the environment or do I need to leave it? Um, so the, that's the, the first sort of business, business is to sort of face into your own identity crisis uh, and understand that uh, the authentic you may be somebody you don't even know or haven't met yet. Uh, and so, you know, those triggers that bring out the worst version of you, those moments where you say, why do I keep doing that? Well, if you can't answer that question, that's a problem because there's a reason you keep doing it. You, it's your job to figure out why that is because you can't keep doing it. The second question to ask yourself is, what is it I wanna be known for as a leader? What, 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 do, what is my role in shaping an environment in which people become the best versions of themselves? And for them to become the best versions of themselves, what does that mean for me? Because am I casting a really big shadow that eclipses them? Am I constraining in ways that causes them to fear me? Am I creating an environment where their voice is welcome? Um, am I encouraging them to build relationships with the people in that department with them who we don't like? Am I making our they part of our we? A am I creating the conditions under which we will perform optimally and, and truly serve a greater purpose? Or am I just trying to look like I'm doing that? I think all of us at our core as leaders and around the people we lead come hardwired with a universal core need to know that we matter, to know that we are significant. The problem is when that need, that when that need does not get met, we set off for devoting ourselves to the horribly dangerous counterfeit need, which is the need to look like we matter. And we spend hours and endless amounts of effort trying to create the illusion of significance when inside we don't feel that way. And if you as a leader, that's true for you, or you're creating conditions under which people have to hide themselves from you and make it and convince you of their significance, you've now created this really unhealthy environment where the truth will never be told, where the greater purpose can't be served and there can't be a level playing field because people now it's become Darwinian, right? Now it's about my illusion versus your illusion. So it starts with asking the harder questions that, that if you want to be your authentic true self, you have to know the truth about yourself. Yeah, I really like that. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh my gosh, it's, it's, it feels like a daily part of my life these days. Um, I, so I, I chose to take my own medicine and about five years ago, I hired a coach for me. Um, I thought I, you know, I need help and I need to know what it's like to be on the other side of that help, uh, which proved to be a remarkable experience for me. 
uh, and tumultuous and disruptive and you know emotionally agonizing and you know having to confront several of my own existential crises of identity. Um, but this book that I'm writing now is a great example. You know, I wanted to push my own voice and push the way I write to a whole new place. So I'm now the way I'm writing this book is a whole new uh, le ledge for me to be on. The stories I'm telling, the stories I'm featuring um, are a way out of my comfort zone place to be writing from. Um, so uh, yeah, it, you, we don't have to go back too far to, to places where, because this, these last five years have been nothing but mitosis for me in learning things I, I didn't know I needed to know. Um, so it's a, uh, yeah, I find myself frequently on the place of, I don't know why you do this. <laughs> what is the one question that you would love to solve? Why are we so committed to our polarization? Ooh. Why? I mean, I, 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 there isn't anything I haven't read about tribalization. I've read every psychological, I get it. I understand the phenomenon of tribalization, but we seem, and if you haven't, if you haven't watched the Netflix special on The Social Dilemma, you should watch it. It's terrifying. I understand what's fueling the polarization now and what algorithms are programmed to make sure that happens. But what kills me, Craig, is we seem as human beings so devoted to it, so committed to being wrongly right and ignorantly right at the expense of our we and to pointing our nasty fingers at people we don't even know whose beliefs we don't even understand, whose differences we haven't even explored just to stay in our tribe. And it, it is breaking my heart to why, I just don't understand why we are so deeply committed to, the, to, to fracturing mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a race of humans, as, a, as nations, as societies, as communities. It just baffles me. Um, I, I, I would just love to interview a bunch of people you know, from the extreme right, extreme left, you know, pick, pick the faction, I don't care. And say, do you enjoy this? Like, is this really fun for you? Do you love what's happening? I mean, what, what, what meaning are you deriving from this contempt? Um, what, what, what satisfaction do you possibly gain from belittling other people uh, to bolster your, whatever you think your tribe believes or owns? I just, I'm, I'm just utterly flummoxed by it. That is one great one great question. I really enjoyed that. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Uh, uh, love well. For the people around you, uh, love them well and invite them to love you well. Oh, very good. Ron, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, so you can come to our website, Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. Um, and we have great videos and articles and tools there. We have a brand new ebook that you can come get uh, called Designing Your Virtual Workplace for those who are trying to figure out this work from home, not work from home thing. You can come find that at Navalent.com slash virtual. And if you want to have our, know our transformation playbook, we, ha we have a, a leading transformations ebook that's also free. You can find that at Navalent.com slash uh, transformation. Follow me on LinkedIn. We'd love to have to keep the conversation going. So come and just click follow on my LinkedIn profile or on Twitter as well at Ron Carucci. So please do stay in touch. Brilliant. So we'll pop them in the show notes so everyone can find those links uh, easily. Ron, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed learning 
around your early days where you just you were kind of that um, catalyst to something happen. You were like, let's give this a go. You, you led through catalyzing uh, rather than kind of demanding people come with you or something along those lines. Um, to see how you fell into that space of organizational capability, leadership, and the, understanding the lessons that you learned inside being internal compared to being external. And that it was pretty much the same thing, but it was viewed differently. And so you're able to uh, assist people a lot more effectively from that external component, which is really, really powerful because people get so absorbed in their internal lens and uh, aren't so good at seeing their helicopter lens and to have someone support them like that is, is really powerful. The work you've done in the research around um, organizational leadership and understanding what helps people transition into an executive role and what will help them ensure that they become successful as a leader rather than kind of getting getting stuck in the space of unknown and uh, because they haven't been prepared effectively. And I think that's really important. I look forward to seeing your work on organizational honesty. And you know, for all of you, I recommend that you keep an eye out for uh, Ron's new book, which will be coming out soon. Uh, and also delve into some of his previous books as well. He has written eight. And obviously, Rising to Power was one we spoke about quite a bit throughout the conversation. Ron, thank you very much for all that you do to ensure that our workplaces are more effective and that leaders get to really excel uh, through the design of their leadership, organization, and strategy, all encompassing together. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Craig, what a delight. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for encapsulating my whole life in three minutes. That was a miracle. Uh, and I appreciate all the good work you do in the world. Thanks for, uh, for having me. Thank you for listening to a brilliant conversation with Ron Carucci, Rising to Power with Influence on the Active CEO podcast. It's so important to stay in your lane as a leader and ensure that your company knows exactly what your vision and strategy is. Having absolute clarity on your vision and strategy allows you to say no. Now, people like you when you say yes, but respect you when you say no. I'll repeat that again. People like you when you say yes, but respect you when you say no. And it's so important when you have clarity on where the destination is, so your vision, and then the strategy on how you're going to get there and what you're going to leave out, which is more important. So what are you going to do? And most importantly, what are you going to leave out? That is what will help ensure that people are aligned, heading in the right direction. And for those who are on the wrong bus, they will step off and it'll give you more room to bring the people on who want to go in the same direction. If you would like to learn more about how you can stay in your lane or you need some support on clarifying your vision or strategy, then please contact me at craig at nrg, the number two, perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. Thank you so much for joining me this week and listening to a great conversation. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast where the ordinary don't belong. 
Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.